Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Justo Gonzalez. He's a retired United Methodist minister and professor of historical theology. Calling him a prolific author feels a bit like an understatement, considering he's written more than 100 books, including the celebrated three-volume History of Christian Thought and his two-volume The Story of Christianity. Most recently, he is the author of Teach Us to Pray, The Lord's Prayer in the Early Church and Today, published by Erdman's in 2020. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with him because perhaps like so many of you, I was assigned his books in my classes. He helped me fall in love with the early church. In addition, his book, Manana, Christian Theology from a Hispanic Perspective, has stuck with me for many years, especially his articulation of what it means to responsibly remember the past. I'm deeply grateful for his work, as I'm sure so many of you are as well. If you've not had the pleasure of reading Justo's work before, this book we're going to talk about today is a good place to start. Alrighty, let's get started. Welcome, Justo. Thank you. It's a, good, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> so on the podcast, we have theologians from a variety of disciplines, and I'm delighted to have a fellow historical theologian to talk with today. So... As I mentioned in the intro, I'm deeply grateful for your textbooks, as well as for the traditioning work of your book, Manana, uh, Christian Theology from a Hispanic Perspective. Would you talk about what historical theology is and what your journey into theology looked like? Well, uh, I could be facetious and say historical theology is the only kind of theology there is. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, let me tell you how I got into it, and that might give you some idea of what I, why it is so important to me. When I first started studying theology, I just arrived at seminary, and uh, everybody was talking about Karl Barth, and you have to read Karl Barth, and I went to the library and got me the first volume of the Dogmatics, and I began reading it, and in the very first page, he starts quoting people that I never heard of. And as I kept on reading, I... I I figured that I really couldn't understand exactly what he was saying exactly, except by knowing uh, who these people were, that he was uh, quoting, what their position was, whether there was a place or context and so on. And so I went into historical theology uh, as, a, as a way of doing theology. In other words, I was not originally interested in history, I was interested in theology. And then I figured that the best way to do theology was to go at it historically. Uh, theology, in many ways, is... Uh, well, it depends on what you understand by theology. If theology is speculation about God, you might do it out on your own. Uh, but if theology is somehow uh, helping the church be faithful to the gospel message and to its own proclamation, uh, then you have to do it in the context of the whole church, which includes not only uh, the saints of today, but... but the saints of the past, the thinkers of the past, and I don't know, also understanding their struggles helps us understand ours. That's another issue. Oh, I love that. <laughs> what moment or two stands out for you as being particularly formative for you on your journey 
as a theologian? Well, I think, first of all, the one I just mentioned, just going to the library and opening the dogmatics of Bart and uh, deciding that somehow I had to find out who these people were. I set the book aside and began looking at each of these people and finding who they were. And obviously it meant that my reading of the dogmatics went very slow, but it was very helpful. <laughs> I think the other point that perhaps, as I was thinking about that question, perhaps uh, the other point that has been significant for me uh, was moving from uh, uh, Latin America to the, to the US. I grew up in Cuba. After I finished my studies here at, uh, at uh, your neighboring school, Yale, uh, I went to teach in Puerto Rico. And then in uh, 69, I came to teach in the US. And uh, there was such a contrast in, in the nature of the church for which I was helping prepare leaders uh, that I found myself completely out of sync with the church of my students. And uh, that to me meant different things. It meant, first of all, that I had to come to grips with the manner in which my own cultural uh, background and my own church background had shaped my theology. And then also, it also in many ways brought a crisis of vocation because I was trying to teach students to be leaders in this church that I did not quite understand. So I think that that was a, a place at which I began, I had to begin thinking in terms of, you know, uh, how does my own cultural background, first of all, affect the way I think and the way, and then also how, uh, what can it contribute to the rest of the church? Um, I think that that's, that's important. And that was also connected with another big change normally. In Latin America, the reason why I was a minority was because I was a Protestant. Here, the reason why I was a minority was because I was Latino. And at that point, there were very few of us around. This was in the 60s. Uh, so uh, it was a, a total change from uh, finding your identity uh, mostly on a, a theological, ecclesiological position where you, where you worship and so on, and now finding your identity more on, on cultural and uh, language traditions and so on. Wow, that's quite a shift. You know, I think of um, just how often, you know, being a college professor, right? Like when students come out of the home church that they've been in, right? And, and, and maybe coming to our institution at Gordon, it might not be that big of a traditional switch for them. But even that small shift of just going to a slightly different church <laughs> is really very, it can be very destabilizing um, in, in a good way. Uh, but then when you add language, when you add culture, when you add <laughs> all these other things on top of it, um, it, it can create a place of, of very, of, of, I think, a very fruitful dialogue with theology and also a place of um, finding connection with the rest of the church and realizing you're not the only one. <laughs> and the way that you've always done church isn't necessarily the only way, right? Well, let's, let's turn to your new book, Teach Us to Pray, The Lord's Prayer in the Early Church and Today. Your book includes an introduction, and then it just follows a very simple structure of chapters that focus on a word or a phrase from the Lord's Prayer. So it's a very straightforward structure, and I really appreciated this. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, the book was originally written in Spanish. Um, 
I always try to translate my own material because it's not just a translation, it's an adaptation. But in Spanish, I was writing for the church, uh, the churches I visit here all the time, Hispanic-speaking churches, where the Lord's Prayer is never said. And when you begin thinking about it, it is because there is this uh, uh, tradition that written prayers are bad. Prayers have to be spontaneous. Now, obviously, spontaneous prayer means that you say the same thing every, every, over and over again, perhaps with different words, but, but everything has to be spontaneous. And what I find fascinating is that these churches that insist that Scripture is above tradition and that uh, fight with other branches of the church over that issue, then turn around and say, oh yeah, Scripture says, Jesus said that this is what we have to preach, but we have to pray, but we have this tradition that says you should not use written prayers. <laughs> so therefore, well, we insist that we're going to be very literal about the Bible on this point and, and make sure that that corrects tradition. On this point, particularly the Lord's Prayer, we do the opposite. We have a tradition that tells us what a good prayer is, and therefore we don't use uh, the prayer that Jesus tells his disciples to pray. So that, that was the beginning of it. And then obviously, beginning with that, uh, the, the whole notion of, uh, that's so typical in the ancient church, of the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. Not as necessarily as what you would say again and again and again, but you don't pray anything that does not fit with that prayer. If, if you say, forgive us our debts or our, sin, or, or our sins or whatever, or trespasses, as we forgive others, you cannot turn around and say, Zap that guy. <laughs> you know? There's something that, that, that limits, that, that, that tells you how to pray. And, and by not using that prayer and by not realizing that in so many ways the model of, of what to ask for and, 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 and how to pray, uh, we lose a great deal. So there's almost a difference in a sense between... Um, uh, drawing a distinction between a model prayer, like you say that uh, the theologians of the early church did, and a formulaic prayer, which would be, you know, I mentioned before we got on here that, you know, my past being Pentecostal, I never said the Lord's Prayer growing up, and it was for the same kind of reasons. It was hesitancy, and I, you know, I'm curious to know if some of the reasons that I experienced were very similar to what you've experienced, where the prayer is like, it's too removed. How can it actually connect with this particular moment in time if it's been around for so long and so many people pray it? And also the sense of like, it's being too removed from God, um, that the Holy Spirit isn't like, it's not the Holy Spirit for this particular moment or that you're just being lazy. That's another one. Like the sense of prayer always has to be you speaking forth so how would you address this fear? Uh, I mean, obviously you wrote a book <laughs> to address this fear, um, but those particular pieces, um, uh, can you speak a little bit more about sort of this prayer as a model and how it kind of addresses some of those concerns? In most churches today, uh, the Lord's Prayer is said at the end of all the other prayers. And it's almost like a long amen. I mean, we pray this as our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray, and then we say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so it's almost like a long conclusion to prayer. At some point, and the date is not exactly clear, but at some point, uh, it became customary in some churches 
uh, and Protestants find that very strange to leave the last doxology at the end uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, and so on, and say the whole Lord's Prayer, and then you stop there, and then you go on and, and express your own prayers, and then at the end you say, for thine is the kingdom. And, and I think that in many ways, structurally, that helps us see that prayer as a mother prayer. In other words, if I say, uh, give us this day our daily bread at the beginning, now I cannot say, uh, give me that Cadillac that I want, even if we, other people go hungry. <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I think that there is a, a value in thinking about it, not as a formula, but as a checklist. <laughs> yeah. Whichever way you structure that in your, in your worship, but, but use it as a, as a way of understanding uh, of a checklist of, a, of what we ought to pray for and how we ought to pray. Yeah, sort of a sense of 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 guardrails, right? Like where if you're um, if you're going outside of this, then you're running into the kinds of prayer that <laughs> is not good. And obviously, you demonstrate the centrality of prayer and specifically the Lord's Prayer in the earlier centuries. Could you give us a snapshot of what prayer looked like in the early church? How did they pray? When did they pray? In what way? With whom? Well, we don't know a whole lot. It's clear, obviously, that the early church followed the hours of prayer of the temple. You find that in the book of Acts repeatedly. I mean, there the, are the certain hours that were specific uh, hours, and they were basically, uh, well, approximately what today we'll call 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, and 3. Uh, uh, and uh, it is not clear to what degree Christians followed that. In, uh, we have three different texts of the Lord's Prayer. One is, as, uh, as everybody knows, in Matthew. Another one is in Luke. There's another one in the Didache, which is an early Christian document. And that, that one says, uh, after saying the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, you should pray three times a day. Now, it doesn't say that these are particularly the same times as everybody, but, but it probably does. And I think part of what's happening here, you have a church that's scattered. And I think this may be helpful for us today now with all this COVID pandemic and so on. You have these churches scattered, and this person is a slave someplace, and that one is, uh, is uh, uh, cutting stone over there, and that woman is over in the fish market. But you know that at this moment, everybody prays together. And we have lost that. We have so much emphasis on personal devotions. You find your best time, and it may be 6 o'clock in the morning, and it may be 9 o'clock. But just a sense that somehow... Uh, we are all praying at the same time, even if we are scattered. And that's, that, I don't know how we restore that, but we have, we have lost that. And I think part of what that early church did was to use these hours of prayer as a way of connecting what they could not connect. Uh, I'm reminded of a, an experience I had, and I don't know if this is really relevant or not. You can cut it off later if you want to. But... Uh, uh, visiting a church in China that had been closed for all during the Cultural Revolution and asking these old people, how did you manage? And they said, we couldn't meet. We couldn't even meet in homes. We couldn't talk to one another. But every Sunday at worship time, we all walked in front of the church and we nodded to one another. And we kept the church going for years <laughs> that way. And it seems to me that that sense of being connected is part of, of uh, the beauty of having a prayer that we know we are all praying. 
And if we can do it at the same time, even better. But I don't think that that's feasible today. Uh, but there was something in the early church that, that uh, made that important. Well, it sounds like this, this sort of resistance to, I mean, of course, private devotion is important, right? Because we each have our own relationship with the Holy Spirit. We're each a temple of the Holy Spirit. But especially in you know, a context like uh, you know, the United States now, um, and you, know, you might have one's own cultural conclave that has sort of a resistance to the very heavy individual emphasis. Um, but at the same time, that draw towards that is very intense where, and it's almost like we've done so much work on that end that we have eradicated a lot of those really important connections that we've needed. Like the idea that you can do Christianity as just me and my Bible. I tell, I tell my students and they get a little bit like, <laughs> get a little shocked when I tell them, I said, just you and your Bible is not Christianity. It can't be. <laughs> it can't be. That's not how, that's not how this works. And go into this big conversation about the body of Christ and how, and, and, and how, uh, you know, body without a hand, without, you know, all this stuff, just like Paul does. Right. Um, but this, the, this sense of, of connection um, if we, if we haven't figured out how important that is by now. <laughs> Just think about this. How much of the Bible was written to be read in private? Uh, how much was written to be read in the presence, in the assembly of the people of God, be it Israel, be it the church? Uh, the epistles of Paul were not written to be read in private. Even, even Philemon includes greetings to other people. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm not saying that they should not be read in private. Definitely we should read scripture in private. We should use it for a devotion, certainly. But something is lost when we don't have that common reading. And uh, a couple of notes about that. One is that I think that that is in the downside of the printing press. Before the printing press, the, the place where people read, have, people couldn't have manuscript, most people didn't know how to read, they had to go to church to hear scripture. And therefore, the, the, the reading of scripture was, had a certain a central place uh, in the Daphne Church. Once you get the printing, the printing press, everybody has a Bible. Now I can read the Bible at home. And now you go to church services where perhaps somebody reads one verse and preaches on it. And that's about as much as we get. Uh, obviously, that's an exaggeration. But, but can we recover that sense that scripture, when read in community, gains a dimension that it tends to lose if we read it only in private. And I think it may be that that may be one of the positive results of the, positive, of the present situation. Mm -hmm. uh, people are realizing that church by Zoom is not quite church. <laughs> uh, people are realizing that... Uh, uh, <laughs> Having the whole day of on your own to meditate and to and to uh, pray and to think uh, is not quite the same as gathering every once in a while with the community to pray together to share concerns to to dream dreams and so on. So, so I, I think that that part of what may be happening as a result of all this is that we will once again uh, uh, come to understand the importance of uh, of the others of being a community, of having other people around us. That's a really good segue into like getting into the first section of your book when you 
focus on uh, the hour of the beginning of the prayer. And you talk about this distinction between why in your private devotions do you still say our <laughs> instead of my, right? Um, and you follow that up with a really lovely reflection on the priesthood of all believers. So let's stay with this this communal conversation a little longer and talk about the communal nature of this prayer specifically. Um, and in turn, talk about some of those misconceptions that some Christians have about the priesthood of all believers, kind of reflecting on that Protestant urge right there that leads to disconnection. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a story in the book because you were talking about moments that change things. And I think when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, uh, uh, it was, again, the first year of seminary, I think it was. I was in, a, in the little prayer chapel at, of the seminary by myself. And I began saying, Our Father. I said, what? Why do I say our? I'm here by myself. And then I began thinking, no, somehow somehow, this is not my prayer. It's a prayer of the people of God. And, and it's not just me. It's also all my classmates who right now are having their devotions in different places. And it's not just us, it's also the church with which I gather Sundays. And it, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I realized that it's a, it's a huge hour. <laughs> uh, hour without an age. I mean, an hour like our father, okay? Uh, uh, it seems to me that, that, that that's, uh, that's fundamental. There are several ancient Christian writers that, that express very clearly why it is that we say our father and not my father. Obviously, it doesn't mean that God is not my father. But it means that God is my father because God is also our father. Or perhaps the other way around, that God is <laughs> our father and therefore also my father. <laughs> uh, now, uh, that is connected, I think, with the, uh, the manner in which the early church understood who it was, who it is. Uh, the church uh, was very convinced that it was the fulfillment of a prophecy, a promise made back in, in Exodus 19, you should be to me a priestly people. And the church considered itself a priestly people, meaning by priest, somebody who presents the people before God. So one of the main tasks of the church is to be this priest, uh, this priestly body that brings the needs of the world before God. And that is why, well, several things. Uh, that is why in the early church uh, you had a, an important prayer uh, that was called the, the prayer of the faithful, quite often was called the prayer of the people, uh, where, you, where you begin, uh, uh, you have already uh, uh, prayed in praise of God and all that, but now you, now you say, you know, these are, uh, uh, these are the things we bring before you. And that is not just for uh, the sister or the brother who happens to be ill in the church, the person whose uh, child has... All that is very important. But it is for us, for the whole church, for the whole world, for the emperor who persecutes us, you know, for whatever uh, uh, people are doing us evil. So it's, 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 it's the embodiment in prayer in many ways of... Uh, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know? uh, and, and the church, well, that's one thing. The other thing is that that, that church, that, that prayer uh, took place usually just at the beginning of communion. 
in the early church, people who were not baptized, baptized in any church, but not baptized, were not allowed to partake of communion. They were dismissed uh, at, at a point in, in the worship service. The first part of the worship service was where they studied scripture, they learned uh, together, the baptized and unbaptized, also getting ready to be baptized, also were curious, whatever. All those people were there, and they had the exposition of scriptures and, and praise and prayer and all that. But then, then comes the second part of the service, which is communion. And communion begins with that prayer. And the people who are not baptized yet are not part of that prayer because they're not yet part of the, of, the, of the priestly people of God. Now, when I was growing up, my understanding of, of uh, the priesthood of all believers was I don't need a priest because I'm my own priest. I can go to God directly and I can tell God whatever I need. And that is true. But that is not what the priesthood of all believers means. Uh, what the priesthood believes uh, of all believers means it's not just not even primarily that we are each our own priest, but we are each and all together a priesthood for all of us, all of humankind, and perhaps even all of creation. Uh, so that the, the, cre the creation that is uh, groaning in travail through our prayers addresses God and expresses the pain of that travail. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, there's so many things that could be said. Uh, th th that, that, uh, that prayer, again, when, when you had a baptism, usually baptisms were done on Easter, the night before, between uh, Saturday and Easter morning, people had just been baptized, and the first time that they go to be part of communion, for the first time they are part of, the, of that prayer, because now they are part of the holy priesthood. Now, that... that uh, 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 I'm, I'm not advocating that we completely copy all that. I'm just saying that that is a different view of the, of the mission of the church that we very often forget. And again, a view that is very important today because today there are many things that the church uses to do that it cannot do. And sometimes we, we, because we don't understand that priestly mission of the church, uh, we think that if we are not meeting, we are not being the church. And uh, it may be a time when we can say, okay, we cannot meet, but we can pray. And we can pray as a we. We can pray together. We can say our Father, even though we are separate. And I, I hope that that's another thing that we will learn from the present circumstances. Hmm. I, I hope so, too. I found your section where you explained what it means to call God Father. Uh, really helpful and the, all the gender considerations there. Would you just talk about that briefly? Because um, I know that as a minister and as a professor, you've probably come across students who you know, are not quite sure about this. And, and especially as an early church theologian, all the conversations of what does it mean for God to be father, right? <laughs> God is not father like humans are father. Uh, but, you know, so, but in what way, right? So, I found your section very helpful. So if you would talk about that, that would be great. I, <laughs> let me be confessing, I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> because I often, when I finish writing something, I am beginning to write something else. And, and so I, I, I haven't read it. But let me just say a couple of things about that. I think, first of all, we have to understand that languages are different in nature. In English, 
you only use gender when you mean physical sex gender. Uh, uh, we have a, 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 we don't have a, a I mean, a, a book is not masculine or feminine. Uh, now, a, a horse or a mare or a, a person, a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a, a nephew, niece, we use those. But they, we, in every one of those cases, we mean a particular gender. Uh, most, uh, uh, many ancient languages, including Greek and Spanish to this day, and, and, and most Romance languages to this day, uh, you have genders. Uh, and everything is. Uh, uh, well, of a gender. In, in, in Spanish grammar, you have five different genders. That's another issue. But okay, everything has, has a gender. And so, uh, the word person is always feminine. Uh, uh, the word father is always masculine. But when, when I, uh, when I went, came back home from school with something that said it had to be signed by what you in English would say, by one of the parents, in Spanish, you say by one of the fathers, because my mother was one of my fathers. Grammatically, it makes no sense to you, but that's the way. So I'm just trying to begin to think that there's different ways of thinking about, about gender. In Greek, uh, when you say brothers, you may very often mean brothers and sisters. And I had an argument with a colleague who used to teach years ago, or you now teach, who said that was not true. And I brought to him a passage uh, from Herodotus where he speaks about, he says that in Egypt, uh, the uh, brothers married each other among the pharaohs. I hope it doesn't make any sense. The, the land would have ended very quickly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Now, that's one thing. The other thing is I think that we have to be wider in our sense of different people's experiences. I can understand where a person who has been abused by a father uh, will find it very painful to call God father. But then I have a very good friend, a, a Latina nun, who tells me that uh, her father was uh, uh, drinking all the time, was abusive. Uh, they had to hide when the father came home because they were afraid of being beaten. And then when she was told that she had a Heavenly Father, to her that meant, ah, I really have a father like everybody else and even better than anybody else. And to her, for somebody to say, no, don't call God Father, is, is, is a shock because, because to her, that's so important. So I think we have to be conscious of different experiences and, and so on. Uh, so uh, the problem is that in English, you have no word for a parent that is not terribly impersonal. You never call your mother your, your, your parent, you know, or your father your parent. <laughs> and so uh, you, you're put in a difficult situation with that. So, okay. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, found that, I found that whole section just really helpful because I think that that's another way that the hour is really important. Understanding other people's experiences, other languages help us to recognize that languages are constructs. In the Lord's Prayer, in Greek, the word hour is not first. It's father hours. <laughs> and so that, com that completely brings things different. Uh, makes things, you think about things differently. Well, let's move on to um, 
another phrase that I, I really appreciated this as well, your reflections on the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, in which you discuss the difference between the necessary and the superfluous. Would you talk about, and we're sticking on this kind of communal theme, because I think it's really important about the communal element of this petition um, and the difference between the necessary and the superfluous, because I will confess that when you say, give us this day our daily bread, I realized in that moment that every time I have prayed this prayer, I meant meet my needs. Um, and when you talk, I, I, it kind of blew my mind and I realized, wow, I really had a very narrow read of this. I, I think there are several things there. I think uh, obviously the, the, again, the hour without the age, okay, oh, you are, the hour bread is important because the we there is the same we that says our father. And so we are not praying just for my bread, we're praying for our bread. And that meaning not only just Christians, because again, if, if this our prayer is a prayer in the name of all of humankind, then uh, to say, give us this day our daily bread means feed all those people who are hungry. And not just me. So I think that's one of the things. The other thing is, uh, that phrase is a, a practical literal quotation from uh, uh, a passage towards the end of the book of Proverbs that says basically, I asked you several two things and so on, do not allow me uh, to uh, have too much so that I may uh, uh, say, who's God? Or have so little that I have to steal and therefore profane your name. Now remember, the very begins by saying, hallowed be thy name. When you have a society in which people have to steal because they don't have bread, that is a profanation of the name of God. So when we say, hallowed be your name, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking somehow create, help us create a society that's sufficiently just so nobody has to steal. And also a society where nobody is so self-assured of all that they have that they can say, eh, who in the world is God? You know, God doesn't count. So I, I think that that's, that's crucial. Now, the difference between the superfluous and the necessary uh, is, uh, is quite common in, the, in early Christian uh, writings. There are all kinds of passages. I mean, uh, Basil of Caesarea, the uh, you know, uh, the extra pair of shoes that rot in your in your trunk, uh, uh, you have taken from the naked. I mean, from the barefooted. The extra uh, the, uh, coat that you have, you have taken from the from the naked. Okay. Uh, why? Because it's superfluous. You don't need you don't need those uh, fifty coats uh, when your neighbor doesn't have any. So I, I think that part of the, of, the, of the issue that they were distinguishing is, okay, what do we really need? And when we have something that we do not need, that's superfluous to us, is it necessary for somebody else? And if it's necessary for somebody else, then strictly speaking, it's not really ours. Now I think I'm going to move to a completely superfluous section, (laughs) 
But it's a lot of fun anyway, uh, where I'm going to ask you a few questions in a speed round. Uh, so this is just like your immediate response. No need to think super hard. We're going to go kind of quickly through these. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Real coffee, not dirty water. <laughs> Are you a morning or a night person? Yes. You're an anytime you're awake person? <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 it depends. I mean, if, if I have a project I'm working on that I really love, I can go on forever. If I don't have a project, I, I, get, I have trouble getting started. Yeah. So. <laughs> if you got a day to hang out with any theologian, living or dead, who would it be? And why? Probably either Irenaeus or Athanasius. Irenaeus who lived in the second century and Athanasius in the fourth. So then you can join Athanasius Contramundum. <laughs> I bet he'd be a, I bet he'd be very interesting. The only thing bad about them is neither Irenaeus nor Athanasius drank coffee. <laughs> They'd miss out. <laughs> what is your favorite holiday tradition? My favorite holiday tradition, uh, Christmas Eve. Roast pork with lots of garlic and, uh, and sour orange juice and oregano and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Black beans oh, <laughs> and, a <laughs> crowd, and a crowd, which obviously uh, this year we will not do. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> well, you know, we, we can hope, right? What would you say? I know this is going to be a really hard question. What is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? For oh, you? That's, that's a difficult one. Notice it, it's not necessarily one you like, but just very significant. I, I, I think uh, uh, the most significant development, I think, is the recovery of uh, eschatology. And therefore, I think that perhaps movements, uh, moments, uh, theology of hope, uh, in a different way, some of the things coming out of Latin America and in the same direction. Uh, but the whole rereading of eschatology, not as a matter of fear, but as a matter of hope. Oh, good answer. What do you do to relax besides write another book? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> my wife has repeatedly says that I never had an unpublished thought. <laughs> and I tell her that I have many an unthought published. <laughs> uh, to relax, well, right now my favorite relaxing is just walking out in the yard. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, it's it's uh, um, the way you're getting out of the house, getting out of being all around all the books, but but going out in the yard. That that's one of my ways of relaxing. And then also uh, in the evenings, uh, 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 watching a ball game, baseball. Uh, <laughs> right now it's a weird game with no no uh, fans or audience. So, but it's, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, I, I think those are the, the ones, and, uh, and right now, just staying away from the news generally. I mean, I, 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 I'm watching those news to know what's happening, and that's all I want to know in general. I don't want to have some talking face taking, telling me constantly about how to understand the world. So when you're able to travel again, which we hope is sooner rather than later, what is a place in the world that you've never been but you'd love to visit? Probably Russia. I think the only other continent where I've never been is Antarctica, and I don't think I want to go there. 
So what is, here's my last one. What's one idea in theology that you think needs to die? The idea that the task of theology is to answer every human question. The task of the church is not to answer questions. The task of the church is to answer to needs. And the response to questions is words, and the response to need is action. And I think that part of what we have missed the boat is thinking that somehow we have to explain why COVID is around, whereas we know that we can't explain it. Uh, the question is, what do we do about it? So I have a couple more questions for you. I'd like to thank Old Testament scholar and recent on-script interviewee, Carmen Imes, for this question. How do you see the Lord's Prayer functioning differently when prayed from the margins for people who are in oppressed circumstances of a variety of ways? I think it sounds very different because it sounds much more surprising. When I was mentioning that uh, non-friend about his sense that this is my father, uh, when you're down and out, when you don't count for anything, when nobody pays attention to you, to be able to say to the Lord Most High, hi, Dad, you know, hi, Mom, you know, that is very, very liberating, and, and it's earth-shaking. Uh, and I think that's part of what happened in the early church. I mean, you have to see <laughs> these poor people being persecuted, slaves, carpenters, uh, women who were held in, 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 in practical servitude, uh, uh, fearing the emperor and all the authorities being able to say, ha, our father. And to be able then, because of that father, to pray for that emperor who is destroying us, you know, and still be able to pray, pray for them. Uh, which I think would be very good if we sort of thought about that also in terms of the present uh, political situation throughout the world, you know. So I think it'd be good to and on the one of the final petitions, um, thinking, you know, I thought about this. Uh, it's like, I'm going to move this question to the end, and especially when you mentioned Moltmann earlier, I think it's a good one. What are we asking when we pray, let your kingdom come? I think in some ways, the most important thing is not what are we asking, the more important thing is what are we committing ourselves to. Uh, in other words, I think that uh, if you say, what, what do we pray for when we say, let thy kingdom come? Well, I think, I think we are asking for a new order of love and peace and justice where all will have enough. Whereas, as the, the prophets say, they will sit each under their own fig tree and under their own vine and no one shall make them afraid. When they shall turn their uh, swords and their weapons into plowshares. Uh, but the problem is not, uh, it's very nice to, to long for that. The question is that we really want it. Uh, uh, or
or do I like my extra fig trees? Uh, and I do have some extra fig trees, by the way. <laughs> do I like my extra fig trees so much that I don't want any order to come because I don't want to share them with anybody else? <laughs> uh, uh, what happens when the church says uh, the earth is the Lord's and fullness thereof, and then uh, in the church you say, ah, but I have a hundred thousand acres of it. You know, uh, I, I, am I praying really that uh, that somehow something else happened? So I think the important thing is is not just uh, uh, what it means in the sense of of how we understand that kingdom, but also what it means in the sense of what does it mean for our obedience today? Uh, it's, it, is, uh, it is probably, when you stop to think about it, it is probably as hard a word as forgive us as we forgive others. Because God, there's implicit there uh, a requirement to participate. <laughs> because if, if you say our, then you are co-heirs with Christ. <laughs> and you're kind of, you're kind of in it and can't get away with it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Justo. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad to know you, even though it's, uh, it's uh, through uh, Zoom. <laughs> I feel when I go out on the street and I see people without a frame around their heads, I would not recognize them. <laughs> so this is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Dr. Justo Gonzalez, retired United Methodist minister and professor of historical theology. He has written Teach Us to Pray, The Lord's Prayer in the Early Church and Today, published by Urbans. You can find a link to his book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.